If you love sports, this is the best time of year. This is just the best time of year. I mean, the NFL is in full swing. NHL is in a couple weeks in already. NBA started off this week. And of course, like we're in the middle of the World Series. So I mean, it's like every night, it's just something going on. Now, if you're, if you're not into sports, it, the trees are beautiful this time of year. But I was thinking that, you know, I can only share sports analogies every so often. Like I could share them every Sunday, but it would be annoying to people. Uh, but uh, I thought this is the time of year to share one. And I read this article, I don't know, a month or two ago, and I thought, oh, this is a good one. I'm going to share this during uh, an upcoming series that we had, that I knew we had coming up. It was an article about uh, the quarterback of the New England Patriots, Tom Brady. Uh, New England Patriots, uh, the, the only team that uh, the Buffalo Bills have lost to this year. But uh, anyways, just saying. Uh, it's an article about Tom Brady, and it was saying that he wears the same shoulder pads that he wore when he was in college. He's been wearing the same set of shoulder pads since 1995. Now, this is an incredibly wealthy person. This is an incredibly famous person. He could, people would be giving him shoulder pads. He doesn't even have to spend money on them. And yet he found a pair that fit him really well, and so he's kept them all the, through this time. And I was thinking about this, like some things, they're just so good that you can't really improve on them, like the Sermon on the Mount. That's right, that's how I'm tying this together. Like a pair of perfectly formed shoulder pads. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has stood the test of time. There is so much goodness in there that we don't need something else. We can just keep going back to this same old message because there is just so much wisdom packed in there. Now, I have to admit this morning that I am a sucker for these commercials that have been on television a lot lately advertising uh, online investing apps and stuff like that, online investing companies. I'm a sucker for them. Uh, so they go like this. If you haven't seen them, just a couple of examples here. So the person sits down with their financial advisor and they ask a question. Next slide here. Uh, they say like, you know, I'm actually going to start doing my own investing. And the person says, well, that's probably the nest, not the best move. And then the client, the customer says, not the best move for who? For me and my family? Fade to black. Well, it's just powerful. Or it's like in the next one, uh, they say, uh, the guy says, well, you're going to miss out on all of my, my wisdom and experience. You mean those 10 minutes once a year? Fade to black. Or it's like, listen, like I, I know you're not seeing what you, the, the returns you want, but you have to play the long game. And the guy says, it's not a game. It's my retirement. Fade to black. It's just awesome. It's just like, oh, they get me every time. I'm a sucker for this stuff. I don't know why. Now, the assumption across the board, of course, is that we should be saving for retirement. That's the assumption. And come February, we'll all be bombarded with reminders for us to max out our RSP contributions. And so I was using this kind of phrase as a, a tagline for the title this morning, and I was thinking, well, I don't know, probably a lot of people don't even know what that means. So essentially it goes like this, this is like the, the two-second lesson, is that you are allowed every year to contribute 18% of your income to an RSP. It maxes out at like $26,000. Now, for some people here, you're like, yeah, okay, I know this is how it works. And for a lot of people here, you're more like this person here, rolling your eyes like, seriously, save 18% of my income? You've got to be kidding, as if that will ever happen. But regardless of our income level, regardless of our current savings rate, regardless of our retirement goals, planning for the future is something that should be on our radar in some way or another, right? Now, a disclaimer that I perhaps should have made at the very beginning, but I'll make it now. I'm not a financial advisor. I don't want anybody here coming back at me 30 years from now 
saying, I don't have enough for retirement. Because on October 27th, I don't want to hear it from any of you. I'm not, I'm not saying anything this morning as an official or professional person when it comes to this. Now, that being said, I'm not adverse to advice. And so I will remind you that we actually have someone in our community who is not a financial advisor, but who is good with money and has offered to sit down with anyone, individual, couple, family, whatever, who would like to talk about finances. And so if you go to our website, elevationwaterloo.org slash financial health, uh, his contact info is there. He's not a financial advisor. He gets nothing from this. He just offers to help. And so if you'd like help from someone who knows what they're doing, talk to him, not to me. But the series that we're in the middle of, and the reason that we're talking about RSP contributions this morning, is that the series that we're in the middle of is called Things Jesus Didn't Say. And specifically, I called this message this morning, Max Out Your RSP Contributions. Jesus did not say this. Now, of course, he couldn't have said this, because there were no such thing as RSPs in the first century. But even if he could have, it seems that he would be pretty clear on the idea that storing up for the future is not something we should do. I mean, listen to this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, this is a challenging one for me, really challenging. I cannot imagine not planning for my financial future. I've been doing it for a long time. When I was in high school, I read The Wealthy Barber. Anyone read The Wealthy Barber a number of years ago? David Chilton, a local guy. He wrote this book, and it was basically this kind of analogy of these people going to this barber who had done really well for himself financially. He'd set up all these, you know, systems in his life to make sure he was taken well care of, and he gives all of this advice. And I was blown away by this. I was introduced as a teenager to the miracle of compound interest. Now, it, it didn't hurt that interest rates were about like 15% at the, at the time, so you just made a bundle on your money. But he had this thing, and his main thing was this. If you read it, you'll remember it. Pay yourself first. Right? If you want to be rich beyond your wildest dreams, you just pay yourself first. You set aside the first 10% of whatever you make, you put it away, you start doing that when you're young, and you will be a millionaire by the time you retire. And so I began, obviously, saving, but I also began, no, not as diligently as he recommended, of course, um, but I also began like tracking things and budgeting, and it drives my wife crazy the way that I budget, and I'm always asking her these little questions, because I learned these habits like when I was a teenager. And so it's really challenging when I read this passage and Jesus is saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures. Because I've got to ask, like, what do I do? Do I go with David Chilton? Do I go with Jesus? Like, how do I decide? Do I throw out what seems like good financial advice, but then do I throw out what seems like good life advice? Or is there another option to be found somewhere here? Well, there's another passage in Luke chapter 12. And I want to read this for us this morning, verses 13 to 21. So I'll just read the passage, and we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of things laid up for many years. Take life easy, 
eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. All right, so a couple of observations here. So this person comes up with a practical question, like I've you know, had this dispute with someone, and it's, I, I'm going to figure out how we can split up this inheritance. And Jesus says, okay, a couple of things that I want to flag, first of all. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. We've got to be careful, because it's easy for us to, to want more. Greed being this kind of inc- incessant desire for more stuff. So be on your guard against all kinds of greed. The second thing it reminds them is that life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. There's more to life than just how much stuff you have. You're so concerned right now that this inheritance gets split up equally, but he turns to the crowd and he said, listen, guys, this is not a way to live where you're like figuring out like how much stuff can you accumulate? No, there's more to it. And then he tells this parable about this man who has these, all these crops and, and he just builds barns and he, he imagines this, this life of luxury that he can live because of all the stuff he has. And the terrifying end that Jesus describes in this parable is a warning to those who will allow themselves to be overcome by greed and who put accumulation at the center of life. And his kind of summary goes like this. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves. But it doesn't actually end there. And this is where I caught a glimmer of, okay, this is maybe not as simplistic as we'd like to think it. He actually says this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. So this isn't like an all-out, like you can't store things for yourself, but it's an idea of like, the chances are, if you're just storing up for yourself, you're not going to be rich towards God. And I thought, well, maybe there's a balance here that we're being encouraged to strike, where we can actually take care of ourselves and be responsible financially while also being rich toward God. And that if we make sure that our our richness toward God comes first, then we'll be able to do the other one faithfully. So... Jesus has this big do not. Okay, do not store up stuff. Do not accumulate wealth. Don't get overcome and overwhelmed by greed. But he also has a corresponding do. There's something he says we should do. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The reason we need to be careful about where we're storing our treasure is that our heart will follow our actions, and our actions will follow our heart in turn. In the words of author Jamie Smith, you are what you love. The things that we love, that's who we become. Those are the things that shape and form us. The things we focus on become our goals and in turn affect our behavior. Eugene Peterson translates Jesus' words this way, it's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place where you'll most want to be and will end up being. So the place that you most want to be, the place you want to get to, that's where you'll end up getting to. Because everything about your life will be decided in focusing in that direction. Uh, Jordan Peterson, who's a professor at the University of Toronto and a clinical psychologist, he talks about uh, one client that he sat down with, and he has this conversation, uh, and he he shares this. He says, one 40-something client told me his vision, formulated by his younger self. I see myself retired, sitting on a tropical beach, drinking margaritas in the sunshine. That's not a plan, he says. That's a travel poster. After three weeks of margarita-filled days, if you have any sense, you're bored stiff and self-disgusted. In a year or less, you're pathetic. 
And yet this is the vision that's kind of put out in front of us, is this idea of like, eventually, like the man who had all of the barns, like eventually we can get to a place in life where we don't have to worry about a thing, where everything is just taken care of, we can sit on the beach and enjoy it all. But I think when Jesus talks about our heart, it's like he's saying, don't sell yourself short. Don't settle for, for a pathetic vision of life. Don't settle for, for a travel poster version of what your life can become. Is it possible that being presented with one way to satisfy our longing, our restlessness, kind of luxury, you know, being just not having responsibility, just being totally taken care of, is, there, is it possible that being presented with that vision, we fail to notice another way? another way to live our lives. And I think that that's what Jesus is getting at. I don't think that the point of what Jesus is saying is that we shouldn't take care of ourselves or be financially responsible. I think what he's saying is that if we chase after that vision, then we give up on another vision, and we shouldn't do that. No one can serve two masters, he goes on to say. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think it's natural for us to disagree with that and to try to find ways, you know, to say, well, actually, I can and, and I am. And, and maybe, and maybe uh, it would be good for all of us to kind of think about these questions and let them rattle around in our brains a little bit this week. Like, do the decisions that I make, do they look more like serving God or more like serving money? Uh, I thought it was just fascinating, actually. Now, this is obviously, we have to go south of the border for this analogy. But on the $1 bill, like, in God we trust. It's like the people who came up and designed this, they were like, you know, I know you can't serve both, but man, we're going to try. We're going to put it right there on our money. And so every time you spend a dollar, you're going to think, but I really trust in God, right? Because that's what we all think when we hand over cash, right? I'm trusting in God right now. Maybe not. Instead of hearing Jesus' words, though, as guilt-inducing, or worse, as irrelevant, because I think it's tempting for us to think that his comments on money are irrelevant, what if we learn to hear them as freeing, as life-giving, and as redemptive? What if he wasn't trying to make us feel bad? What if he wasn't trying to hang us out to dry in our retirement years? But what if he was helping us find our way? What if he was inviting us into a trusting relationship with God? I attended a lecture a couple of years ago uh, at McMaster, and Miroslav Wolf was speaking, and I jotted down some notes. I went back to them this week when I was preparing because he, he was talking about like a flourishing life and, and the vision that we have of what a good life looks like. And I jotted down this one line that he said. He said, our desire for material things may be more than just a chain. It may be a sign of our search for meaning. It may be a prayer. So this desire that we have for more, it may not just be this bad thing like a chain that we've got to avoid and it keeps us from moving forward. It may actually be a sign that we're longing for something more in life. This desire for more may be a prayer. It's an interesting way for us to think about it. This last week, uh, myself, uh, Melissa Burke, and Sue Winter from our steering committee, uh, along with a couple of others who carpooled with us, we headed down to a conference in Oakville, and we were driving down the 401, and we were just outside of Milton when uh, a car accident happened right in front of us, like with, within, like from here, kind of the front of the church, this car. Um, all of a sudden, we saw like, I assume it was like kind of this burst of like steam from the engine and car parts flying everywhere. And we see this car just crumple into the back of a pickup, of a, of a semi, and then it kind of does this 360, spins out and slides off the road. And we're like, oh my goodness, Sue's in the back. She's like, pull over. I was like, yes, you know, off we go. 
Um, so we pull over and we hop out of the van and we start heading down the side of the 401 to see if everyone's okay. Uh, the traffic had like slowed down near stop. There are car parts everywhere, all over the highway. And we walk, and as we're getting closer to where the accident happened, we see two people standing outside of the car and, and they actually seem to be doing okay. They didn't seem to be panicked. They seemed fairly calm. And when we got there, one of the passengers was on, uh, was on the phone, obviously calling the police or something. And the other was standing there. So we went up and we're just like, are you guys okay? And, and they're like, he's like, yeah, yeah, car's not so good. And the car was totaled. He's like, yeah, car's not so good, but we're fine. We're okay. And I was like, what happened? He said, basically went on to say that he was trying to weave around the pick this semi and he just clipped the back of it on the way around. He's like, I was just trying to get through, and well, I guess there wasn't enough room. And, and I could tell, I mean, he was not really shaken up at all, um, but he was more like, I think, disappointed in himself. He's like, I, I tried to do this move, and ah, well, I nah, totaled my car, you know. Oh, to have that kind of ease about these things, I don't know. I was thinking about it, uh, obviously, this kind of the image of it kind of happening right in front of me has been kind of rattling in my head all, all through the week. And I was thinking that, Sometimes we try to do that in life, right? We try to like take the shortest or the quickest or, or what we would consider the most efficient way through life. And it's like, oh, Steph, I wonder if this little shortcut will get me through. And Jesus is trying to help us navigate life in a way that doesn't lead to disaster. He's not trying to make life harder for us. He's trying to say, listen, if you try to, to get around this thing in life, if you try to go in that way, you're really risking yourself in getting into trouble. It reminded me of this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So this is Paul writing to the church, early followers of Jesus, trying to figure out how do we do this. And he uses this building analogy, which kind of brings us back to a song that we sang earlier, this, this idea that we would build our life on the foundation of Jesus. He says, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what they have built survives, they will receive their reward. If it is burned up, they will suffer loss. The person themselves will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." I thought of this passage because it's a, this idea and this language of escaping through the flames. It's like we try sometimes to get through life according to our own terms and what seems best to us, but it's like Scripture's advice is be careful. We have to think about the way we build our lives because you may make it through life, but do you want to make it through life just barely escaping it as one escapes through flames? Don't we want something more than that? See, everything Jesus has said so far, all of his talk about where we store up our treasure and what it says about our heart, all of that sets up what comes next. Do not worry about your life. All of that stuff that he had been talking about, it leads into this. Therefore, do not worry about your life. He goes on, if you remember from the reading that Teresa did for us earlier, to talk about birds and flowers, these examples from daily life. And the irony did not escape me. I was, uh, had an opportunity this week to spend a couple of days at a little cottage on a mini retreat where I had some time to pray for our church community and do some kind of long-term planning for us as a church. But before I got to that, I had to finish writing my sermon. And so I'm, I'm sitting there on Thursday morning and I'm, I'm reading this passage about Jesus saying, like, the birds, they, they just like, they just go and God feeds them and it's good. And look at the flowers, they're so beautiful. And I, I literally had just been outside taking pictures of flowers and birds and I'm sitting there reading this going, and this is still true. The shoulder pads still fit. It's so true. 
like these beautiful things that are just like awe-inspiring to us, like they just take care of themselves. And Jesus is like, you can live a life like this too. You don't have to live a life consumed with worry and anxiety. It's not that possessions themselves are bad or that saving for the future is bad. I think that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. It's that far from putting us at ease about the future, these things actually end up leading to worry. The more we focus on accumulating stuff, the more we have to worry about. Why? Because suddenly the responsibility for our lives turning out well is in our feeble hands. Responsibility is something that's important, but it's something that we often take too, we take too much responsibility. So our youth are away at a retreat this weekend. I was thinking about how the, the first time that I was a leader at a youth retreat. So I would have been probably at the end of high school, maybe early university, and I had an opportunity, the youth group that we were a part of, we went to this campground or whatever, and there were cabins. And I was like the leader in our cabin. And so I'm like 19 or something like that, and I'm responsible for all of these like junior high age kids. And I did not sleep a wink all night. I laid there awake all night. I'm like, someone is going to choke to death or escape out the window or something terrible is going to happen on my watch the first time I'm responsible. So I was like, no way, not going to happen. So I basically laid there awake the whole night, making sure that everyone was safe. Like when we, that's taking responsibility a little too seriously, right? And when we take our life into our hands and think, I've got to do this myself, I've got to trust myself, I've got to make things happen, then we be consumed with this anxiety and this worry about whether or not our life will escape out the window. If you think, though, it's challenging to let go of material possessions, try letting go of worry. That's really difficult. When it came to possessions, Jesus was pretty harsh. He says, you fool, right? You fool. You think you can just accumulate and that's going to get you through life? Like, what a waste. But when it came to worry, he softens. The tone shifts a bit here from a stern warning to a gentle invitation to trust in God. I want to read verse 31 to 33 again. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It's like Jesus was saying, people who don't believe in God, people who don't trust in God, worry about these kinds of things. But you do believe. And so if you do believe, how can you be so worried about this stuff? Now, listen, I'm not a big fan of pithy sayings, but I like this one. It's simple, it's easy to remember, and there's a lot of truth to it. Let go and let God. The simple reminder that there's something about life where we want to cling and we want to hold on and we want to possess and we want to worry. And God is saying, just let go of it and trust me. The end of the passage we heard this morning, verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I remember reading this verse as a high school student. It was around the same time I was reading David Chilton. And this was the first time that I realized that what Jesus said actually applied to my everyday life. It was the first verse in the Bible that I was like, wow, that applies to my experience right here and right now. Because I was worried. 
what was I worried? What, is, what does a high school student worry about? Well, I'll tell you, I was worried about my girlfriend, whether that relationship was going to last, whether I was going to screw that one up. But it turned out all right. We've been married for 22 years, so that one worked out all right. I was worried, the other primary worry I was thinking, I was probably really worried about university. I was worried about the courses I was choosing in high school. I was worrying about choosing the right program in university. How'd that one turn out? I dropped out after second year, pursued a totally different career path. So it didn't work out. Or maybe it did. Does it matter? The things that we worry about, the things that consume our thoughts in one year or one stage of life, all of a sudden, like, we just continue to go. We follow God. We go where the path leads. It was perhaps the first time that I took Jesus' words to heart. And I realized this is life-changing stuff. When we hear what he's saying, and when we not only hear what he's saying, but actually allow it to shape and form our lives, it changes us. Now, there's so much more to the Sermon on the Mount. We've only been talking about it for four weeks. We're not even going through the whole thing. But I'd encourage you to pick it up and read it. Read it right through to the end. I will share the ending now. I'm going to spoil it for you. Um, but there's so much more that we haven't even touched on this month. But it's just a reminder that the things that Jesus is talking about, even though we said them 2,000 years ago, they speak to our lives today. At the very end, he says this. Therefore, so like summarizing everything he's talked about in the sermon up to all, everything we've talked about over these last four weeks and everything else that we've left out. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built a house on a rock. He tells a story. He says the winds came, the waves came, but it didn't matter because the house is built on a strong foundation. He said, but imagine if he hadn't built the house on the rock. What about the person who builds it on the sand? What would happen to that house? Well, the winds come, the storms come, the waves sweep up and it washes the house away. And that's how he ends it. Drops the mic, walks off the hillside. All these things I'm saying, they're not just fancy words, they're not just slogans. Don't just like tack it up on, a, on your wall, but live it. Listen to what I'm saying, live it out in your lives, and it'll be like you're building your life on a strong foundation. In the Sermon on the Mount, we learn how to build our lives so they will survive whatever comes. I'm going to pray and close this time, part of our time together this morning. Lord, we're grateful for these words. Some of us have heard them a hundred times, and my hope is like in my own life that they ring true on the hundred and first time. Some of us may be hearing them for the first time, and God, I ask that regardless of where we're at on that scale, that, that your words would speak to us and would call us into a life of trusting you, that you would give us wisdom and how to plan our lives, but also give us an invitation to trust you in the midst of it, that we would be able to balance this responsibility and trust, that we would live these generous lives, and that we would also be able to be responsible with what you've entrusted to us. God, we ask that you would help us to live out these things that you teach. And so we commit this to you, and I ask that you would bring these things to our mind throughout the course of the day and the week as we continue to discover what it means to follow Jesus. Amen.